This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today for the Middle Eastern Studies series, my guest is Dr. Alda Benjamin. Alda recently wrote a book, Assyrians in Modern Iraq, Negotiating Political and Cultural Space, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. The book deals with the question of who are the Assyrians in modern Iraq and how they negotiated their presence, this cultural and political space. But first of all, before we're going to delve into the question of the Assyrians, Alda, welcome. Thank you, Roberto, for this invitation. Alda, there's one question I want to ask immediately because I think it's very important uh, to define uh, the topic. But, you know, can you tell us something a little bit about yourself, your background, and also the origins of the book? Thank you so much. Yes, of course. Um, I'm a historian of the modern Middle East. Uh, I focus mostly on the Arab world. Um and the consequences of violence in in the Middle East, uh, including forced expulsion, rural, urban, and global migrations, uh, and the formation of diasporic communities, which, of course, the Eastern community is is a diasporic community. Uh, Currently, I am, uh, professionally speaking, transitioning from a a position, a faculty fellow position that I had um, at the uh, University of California, Berkeley, uh, the history department there, and I'll I'll be starting um, an assistant professorship at the University of Dayton uh, in January. I've also held other positions in um, at the Kluge Center, the Library of Congress, as a fellow, where I finished this book, and uh, before that, I was a postdoc uh, with the Penn. Cultural Heritage Center at the Pennsylvania, uh, at the University of Pennsylvania Museum, and the Smithsonian, um, focusing on um, cultural heritage, its destruction, preservation uh, in Iraq and Syria. So, in relation to the origins of the book, uh, really the idea sparked uh, when I was working on a um, MA thesis at the University of Toronto's uh, NALC department, uh, Near Eastern Studies department. Um, at that time, I research had focused on grassroots organizations in the post-2003 Ba'athist Iraq. Um, And I had returned to Iraq for the first time in 2007, uh, a country I had left as a child in the early 1990s with my with my family. Uh, and it was really interesting. I, I started interviewing those um, for my master's thesis. You know, I uh, conducted a lot of oral interviews, also collected a lot of the magazines and publications of these new sort of grassroots organizations. And what I learned is that a lot of these organizations had their roots in this earlier period, uh, 1960s to 1980s, which uh, seemed to me at that time to be quite foundational. And and it, it, so it became the topic of my uh, 
PhD dissertation uh, and, and now book. So I went back to this earlier period and, and uh, indeed my, my original sort of hypothesis was right. It, that the 1960s to 1980s was, was quite important, very foundational, and it has an impact in, uh, even today on, on uh, important sort of literary figures, uh, politicians that you see even operate, operating uh, today have their roots in this, uh, in this sort of um, early Republican period of the country, post-monarchy. Good. Thank you so much for this overview. Um, I just want to ask you something in order to start the discussions about your book. And this is a general question, one that you know perhaps some of the listeners may not be very familiar with uh, all of the communities in the Middle East. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about uh, the Assyrians. Who are they? Sure. Um, the Assyrians are a historic community uh, native to Mesopotamia or northern Mesopotamia. And they belong to churches that follow the Syriac Christian tradition. So there's, you know, there's an umbrella of those churches that sort of you could group. Um, and they also, the community speaks uh, Aramaic that is influenced uh, by Akkadian. Um most studies of the of on on the community or Iraqi Christians in general depict them as as you know belonging to these sort of handful of um, of churches uh, without really any shared um, conception of ethnic identity or commonalities and uh, also the issue of identity which you bring up is generally not placed within a historic historical framework that. You know, takes into account um, the the various aspects influencing its its development, especially in the nineteenth and, and the um, and the early twentieth, uh, actually most of the twentieth century. So, you know, for instance, you have divisions between the various Syriac um, Christian denominations, taken to be particularly the Assyrians and Chaldeans. Uh, taken to be um, very ancient division, divisions and um, religious denominations to be demographically static uh, and, and very rigid, uh, governed by these very rigid institutions um, that are religious institutions in general. Uh, but, you know, within the, um, the urban spaces, the, the political spaces that I explore in this book, the 1960s to the 1980s, um, I see that Assyrians were able to reach beyond uh, these sectarian divisions, uh, very similar to Iraqis, by the way, other Iraqis that we talk about, uh, of other communities and ethnicities, and um, and and they 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 transcend the sector this sort of sectarian division to to some extent by living in, in similar neighborhoods, by joining labor unions together, um, and and pol- political parties, and cooperating in these sort of intellectual clubs and and um, as writers and these newspapers, and also by intermarrying. So if you're not living in a particular village, you're living in this new urban uh, setting, you, you fall in love with your neighbor. You, you know, so, so there are these sort of, um, uh, you know, intermingling as, as neighbors and as community members that happens. And also, interestingly, there, there is a similar Aramaic dialect, a, a koine that develops in these urban settings that's, that's a little bit different than a particular dialect of, let's say, Aramaic in a particular region or, or, or a village. So, you know, and, and you see these interactions throughout the pages of the book and, and or evidence for these sort of uh, what I talk about. Um, and, and, you know, to, to be clear, the interdenominational divisions are not fully eradicated. They do exist and they are exacerbated at, at particular 
period, sometimes with the government's uh, influence or, or other reasons. Uh, but they are, in, in the period that I talk about, reduced, uh, particularly in the spaces, the secular spaces that I talk about, um, which to, to many, in many ways exist to in, in this form, um, uh, in, in many of these forms to this date. Uh, that we, we that we have in in, in, in various spaces in, in the diaspora or in the in the homelands. Um, so so basically, what I try to do, sort of the correct to, to correct some of the misconceptions that that uh, I, I try to address in my book, is that understanding uh, that communities are not monolithic and, and the Assyrians are also not monolithic, and the divisions are not only based on denominational religious lines. Um, there are other divisions uh, that are structural. So, for instance, um, between those who live in, ver- in villages or rural centers and, and urban centers, b- between those who um, speak Aramaic and, and do not speak Aramaic, um, and, and also socioeconomically, those belonging to different ideological camps, um, and educationally as well. So there's many divisions that exist in the society, and I try to sort of, uh, you know, shed more light into various aspects of the community um, that uh, that exists in any community, I would, I would argue. Fascinating. And you, you actually anticipated a little bit of an answer to, to my next question. Um, so... The book is very much about placing Assyrians in the context of Iraqi history. And I thought this was an important aspect, just to not take them as a foreign body, but as part of Iraqi history. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about the historiography of the Assyrians, your approach, and also the sources that you use for your book. Thank you, Robert. Um, Roberto. I... When I when I took on this question also uh, of of um, the 1960s to the 1980s being a foundational period, I I began to realize that there was a real um, lack of scholarship on the period that I study for Iraqi historiography in general, not only the Assyrian community. Uh, you know, we 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 deal a lot with the monarchical period, the, the period of the monarchy. We have really excellent sources for them in in, in the British libraries and in uh, in Britain. Um, and also, you know, it's accessible. It's, it's more easily accessible. And then we also focus on the Ba'athist period, especially the 1980s and 1990s, the ascendancy of the um, Saddam Hussein to presidency, the Iran-Iraq war, and, and authoritarianism. And, and, you know, and that's also very important and sheds a lot of, um, lots of important studies that gives us a, the context that we need. But there is generally less work on the early Republican period, the 1960s to the 1980s, um, and, uh, you know, the 1970s also. So we have the, the toppling of the monarchy, the early Republican period in Qasim, the two Arif brothers, and, you know, that period, generally we have less sources for, and, and we know, of course, the state um, and, and the problems with the archives and, and um, I mean, the is a whole discussion on, on uh, you know, the ethics of the Iraqi archives or their absence from, from the country, their possible return and, and, and so on and so forth. But when, when you even um, get even um, a bit further and, and, or more specific rather and focus on the Assyrian community, especially 
given the approach I wanted to take and looking at them not only within these sort of religious um, networks or within structures that are important. Of course, I I don't want to say that they are not important. They're very um, prominent and and relevant to the communities, but that there's so much more to any community and society. I thought that there is a lack of um, scholarship, a lack of uh, even archives. Uh, and, And this is a problem for many communities in the Middle East where they're either displaced or they face genocide or, um, you, you know, I mean, and, and the, the state and its modern um, agenda of, of creating archives and, and what archives do you include and exclude, what communities have a voice and such. So, you know, even some of the magazines were that were created in my, you know, our, our parents' generation, 1970s, even 1980s, were hard to access when I started my research in 2010, 2011, uh, when I was a PhD student at the time. So I, what I wanted to do with my archives is, um, I mean, twofold. One, focus on this period in Iraqi history that I felt was not covered well, was not, there was much more to be done with it. Uh, work with um, non Western non-British sources. So I really wanted to include Iraqi uh, material. Um, And I I was the first in 2011 to do research at the Iraqi National Library and Archives. And um, I I was able to find really uh, important works and and, uh, have support from wonderful archivists at the library. Uh, For instance, uh, the the police records I have for the communist chapter all come from the Iraqi National Library and Archives. Uh, And also approach these smaller libraries, intellectuals, people who were active during this period who had this material, who just collected it. Uh, And also some, you know, religious um, private libraries uh, that uh, from the Chaldean Church, from the Church of the East, the Church of the East and such. So, uh, and, and interview a lot of people on the ground who were active during this period. Um, who so so my approach not only was to cover this period that I felt was not covered, but to look at um, supplement material on the Assyrian community and Iraqi history using local sources, um, and to give a different perspective on on Christians in the Middle East. You know, I think um, we focus a lot on either persecution uh, or thinking of them as, as fifth columns in their societies. Uh, but we don't think, we, we don't usually give them agency. So I really wanted to give them agency. So look at their uh, pluralistic engagements within society, within uh, other communities that they had shared interests along um, similar, you know, given their similar socioeconomic positionality, right? Um, You know, you you might be workers in the same company, you have the same grievances, what attracts you would be similar. So I I wanted to focus on those spaces um, and and look at the the pluralistic engagements of Assyrians within within context of of their communities. Of course, course not ignoring their particular um, circumstances and what happens to them. Yeah, every community has particular characteristics that define it and not ignoring their marginalization. That was also important to me. So I wanted to look at both of these aspects. So, so you know, what I, you know, in, in terms of how I look at the Assyrians, you know, and uh, all Iraqi studies, you know, my book is about Iraq. Um, so, so covering a period that's not covered, covering also a region, you know, Assyrians are mostly rural uh, communities, so the rural urban migrations and looking beyond Baghdad, beyond urban centers. Um, and then in terms of historiography, like I said, not only in terms of looking at them beyond the religious lenses, but also 
how are Assyrians covered in Iraqi um, historiography or Iraqi studies? And usually it's about, it, it, it's there, you know, we look at them as refugees coming from, um, you know, the period of the World War I period, uh, uh, the gen- genocidal campaigns that affect Armenians, Assyrians, and other communities, their displacements, um, and then the Semen massacre of 1933. But all, th- those studies are also problematic because, you know, they... They ignore um, the ecclesiastical organization of the Church of the East. Let's say this is even before the divisions which creates the Church of the East and the Chaldean Church, right? Uh, the ecclesi- you know, these networks of trade, these networks of pilgrimage, which were not so neatly divided along these borders. So, you know, yes, there's there's displacements and there's movements, but they're not going to foreign areas. Yet, um, the historiography looks at them as, as foreigners. And, and this idea of, of this community being foreigners coming from, uh, you know, um, uh, what becomes eventually Turkey to Iraq and, and um, uh, you know, collaborating with the British, which is, which is only a very... Um, uh, not a complete uh, picture of, of the community and its history during this period. This is what generally sticks with um, the, this is how Assyrians are usually sort of written about in a paragraph or so. So I, I wanted to do much more and I wanted to contextualize them in Iraqi history, give them agency without ignoring their min- minoritization and, and periods of persecution that the community faces. You just mentioned that your book is actually about Iraq. Obviously, the Assyrians are part of Iraq. So I was wondering, uh, you know, if you can speak briefly about the effects of the First World War, which then led to the creation of Iraq in relation to the Assyrians. Yes, I mean, that's, uh, I, I just touched upon it in, in, the, in the previous sort of uh, response to your question. It, it's a very big um, topic, one that we are still exploring. You know, we, um, much more studies need to be done on this topic, uh, really the genocide, the displacement. Um, but we do know that uh, Assyrians face similar uh, circumstances like the Armenians um, who are living in, you know, places like Urmia, in Hakkari, in, in Van, in, ver- in various places. Um, the estimates suggest that more than 250,000 Assyrians or so belonging to various Syriac denominations or, you know, uh, by various, I mean, like no, no more than four, you know, three, four, um, are perished between 1914 and 1918. Uh, some some uh, would, would say about half of the Assyrian community uh, is killed during this time. So, you know, you, you have not only the destruction of human life, you have... Um, which included, uh, of course, gendered violence. We, we forget about that, you know, sexual uh, abuse, rape of women and, 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 and such, uh, but also loss of farming land and property, uh, the destruction of Assyrian cultural heritage uh, was severely damaged, churches, uh, historic monuments, um, schools, libraries, uh, manuscripts, books, and, and, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, the the community during the World War One period is really deprived from uh, significant, uh, you know, uh, sites of deep um, significance for its collective memory. Uh, the demographic shifts uh, that 
I, I, I mentioned results result from these genocidal campaigns uh, lead in turn to transregional dislocations. I, I talk about that, I discuss that in my first chapter, um, the, the transregional dislocations um, from, from various areas and, and movements. And, um, you know, the this is followed by 15 or so years later, the Ismail Massacre of 1933, where you have the first crime of the Iraqi uh, state against its own population, um, where hundreds in Semel, the village of Semel, and up to thousands are killed in, in the region collectively. Um, so there's a lot of trauma. The World War One period leaves trauma um, that is uh, collectively experienced by the community. And um, long-lasting consequences, particularly with the Semel massacre, um, you know, because it does impact in general those who have survived um, the genocide. Not 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 fully in the Semel village itself. Definitely, there are survivors of the of the um, of the genocide. But but uh, when you look at outside of that area, they have been impacted by by the displacement. Because again, you know, I mean, think of the networks that connected these communities before these borders are drawn and, and divisions are made in, in, uh, in northern Mesopotamia or these areas, right? So um, all of this, there's disruption to the way people communicated, uh, these networks of trade, of pilgrimage routes, of or church organization, all of these are are um, are disconnected, basically. And, uh, you know, uh, but the perception that persists among several uh, generations of Iraqi statecrafters and intellectuals closely associated with them is that Assyrians are foreigners. And this comes up in the martial trial records of the 1960s of communist Assyrians. Uh, it comes up in, in, in various ways, you know. Um, the there's a request, for instance, in 1948 to form a, an Assyrian battalion to fight along with the Iraqi ones in, in Palestine to liberate Palestine, the liberation war of Palestine. Um, and again, you know, there is, um, uh, you know, there is uh, the request is, of course, uh, accepted, but um, the way it's, it's worded in these government documents that you read, it's sort of a, uh, you know, uh, to correct their earlier mistakes. So, so the stigma um, of, of the Assyrian community and um, their placement and their, um, their citizenship or lack of it within this new modern state, really, can you can trace it to the Semen massacre and the genocide. Um, and, you know, it, it, in many ways, it continues. You know, for instance, um, you um, the, these perceptions are not only, of course, advanced by uh, Iraqi state crafters, but but you know they're they're originated by British colonialists um, and and advanced advanced by scholars who, um, to some extent, even you know today look at uh, Semel very um, peripherally, not ignoring. Um, how the Assyrians were treated and, and their politicization, this idea of a military race, for instance, very problematic ideas that are advanced um, that to some extent stick. And the Semel massacre, uh, along with other crimes of the Iraqi state, you know, the Farhud also, are not recognized by the Iraqi state, of course. So um, the trauma passes on from generation to another, uh, the experiences of Iraqis. Um, and the Semel massacre particularly um, is commemorated Commemorated by the community in various ways, in poetry and literary circles. Um, it's also very interesting, you know, interviews I conducted with 
uh, communists born in the 1920s, 1930s are, uh, you know, they, they will tell you we joined the Communist Party because we, we wanted a better Iraq, uh, one that uh, would, uh, you know, given our, our experiences of injustice, our poverty, lack of access, you know, the Communist Party sort of provided the answers and, and um you know, uh, and, and we were we were attracted the secular sort of stance of the party. We were attracted to it, and it's interesting. In one of my interviews, um, a man born in 1933, very much uh, 1933 on the eve of the Semel massacre, um, his his nickname is Abu Baz. Of course, I don't use uh, names in my book, um, given the um, institutional review process I, I've gone through. But but he wanted this nickname to be used for him. He he. Um, he traces, you know, his birth, his mother, for instance, um, giving birth early to him because of a fear and uh, being alone, a young mother. Um, uh, he, you know, in his own words, her, her milk had dried up and he would have died had it not been for the Yazidis who saved his mother and, and him and, and um, their mothers uh, or the, their woman, Yazidi woman, nursed him to life. So for him, you know, the injustice he faced in his uh, early, I mean, at birth in the Semel massacre, um, he connects it ideologically to the Communist Party. And then the poverty he experiences, him leaving school early because they, he had to work, he could not support him, he had to help support his family. Uh, and this idea that um, his struggle and, and um, this moment cutting across denominational boundaries, um, allowing Iraqis to unite in the face of injustice, which for him was the Semel massacre and, and uh, this other community, the Yazidis, coming to their re- rescue. So, so, you know, the trauma of it re- lived and, and, and continues to uh, for the community. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, um, experienced, it, it's manifested in different ways. You mentioned the communists, so let's talk about chapter one. Uh, you start the discussion claiming that the relationship between Assyrians and the Iraqi Communist Party has not been fully investigated. And I wanted to ask you why you think this is the case, and also what is your contribution to this uh, you know, corner of history? Yes, um, I feel like my whole book could have been on the Communist Party. That one chapter could have <laughs> fully expanded to include so much more that I couldn't. Um, really, there's a lot of uh, there's many aspects uh, on uh, of the Assyrian community's uh, engagement with the Communist Party that are revealing uh, and shed light on you know your society's interactions with with um, with the state, uh, urbanization. Uh, grassroots activism, organization of the party, uh, the Iraqi judicial system, gender relations, you know, I mean, and, and um, rural, you know, rural communists, how did communists, you know, outside of Baghdad and urban centers, how do they interact? So there, there's a lot that can be said, and I, um, I shed some light on that in my book. Um, so, you know, what happens in the, in the book, what, what my book is really about is that, you know, the second half of the 20th century, Iraqi Assyrians are urbanizing. They're moving from rural to urban centers for a variety of reasons. You know, uh, it's a civil war that's breaking, you know, the Kurdish uprising. It's, um, they want to have better opportunities. You have these modern professions and companies in in the oil sector and and also transportation that are opening up and and uh, but also better educational opportunities that you find in the capital or in the city so so there you know the rural urban migration is happening for for all these reasons and 
they they become in urban centers exposed to political ideologies uh, that appear to various segments of the society, right? So so you know you're you're moving to an urban center. You're 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 a farmer. Let's say your cousin has moved. You you go and move in with your cousin, and and you're um, it's a story of all immigrants, right? You you go somewhere. You you might not know Arabic very well. Um, and, and you connect with other members of your community uh, and you find your employment. And it's usually in, in, in these sectors that I mentioned, oil, transportation and such. But then you're finding that there is a lot of injustice, right? I mean, you're not happy or you're, you're a worker. You want better pay. You want better quality of life. Um and so on and so forth. So you 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 urbanize and you, you politicize in these unions, um, and and there's many many um, important sort of uh, or interesting let's say important and interesting uh, stories that I found. And and uh, for this part chapter in particular, I included. Um, you know, uh, British archives, I included uh, Iraqi archives, um, the uh, 1963 uh, Marshall cases against um, communists or those accused of being communists. Um, and I also included co- interviews with some of these communists in Iraq that I've conducted um, and also publications of the Communist Party. So I, I really wanted to sort of give a different flavor and, 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 and a multifaceted approach to this, you know, really interesting uh, time period and, and um so I, um, you know, what we what we see here is that um, the the organization of the party, you know, first it's I'm including new sources. So this is my my contribution to to this chapter, the new sources that I bring to light, but also the rural urban connection. Um, I, I mean, Batatu, of course, mentions uh, various different uh, communities and, and, and tells us that all these groups are active and involved and, and shows us with various, you know, tab- tables that he organizes. And I rely on that, of course. Uh, Tariq Asma'il does a wonderful job also in doing that for us. Uh, but I think I what I what my, my addition is not, it's not just a community's aspect or, or history that I'm including in, in the history, the general history of the Communist Party. But, you know, how do they organize? So, you know, I talked about this individual he, who's, who's recently um, uh, migrates to Baghdad and, and lives with his cousin, uh, becomes part of the, uh, let's say, oil company and, st- and, and, and such, and, and joins the union and such. So so what happens is that, although what I, what I realize is that um, Although the Communist Party is blind to ethno-sectarian affiliations of its members, a lot of the cells that I was looking at, the names I was looking at, were um, came from very diverse backgrounds, and you had cells that were, of course, also diverse. But um, the Communist Assyrians were generally uh, organizing according to their communal affiliations, and and the reason is because they're recently urbanized communities. Uh, and also these connections with family members. So if you're from Al-Qosh and you're living in Baghdad, and then you go back, you decide to go back to your city, to your town rather, in, in, in the north, uh, you spread the ideology to people in your town. So there were, there were these rural urban migration or connections rather, rather that happened. Um, and... And what happens is that, you know, these kind of connections become important because after the toppling of Qasem, uh, there is this, you know, uh, violence that unleashes thousands and thousands of communists are killed and, and you know, uh, brought to trial. Um, so, so and, and many of them are executed, those who are, you know, uh, important leaders in Baghdad. So they, those rural urban connections become important because one, you can escape, you have a route to escape, and two, you can continue the affiliation of the party. And many do, you know, those who are from the Kurdish 
um, communities and, and others, uh, and also the resistance to the Ba'ath Party happens in the north. So then, you know, the rural um, aspects of the party or the r- rural organization uh, branches of the party are, are important. And this is where... Um, I show what happens to the Communist Party post-1963. So the, the, the story is not finishing 1963, but it's continuing. Also, um, you know, the, the, um, the extreme violence that's unleashed towards a communist and their sympathizers is that um, in 1963 does not spare the community. So uh, you have issues of identity, citizenship, gender, um, or people just disliking each other, all of these. And, you know, Batatu and Ismail tell us about these, but you see them in the court trials. You, 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 you know, you, you can sort of like play them out in the witness testimonies, you know, people you know, testifying so-and-so as a communist, and, and, and they go into specific details. So all of these issues come up. And, um, and, and you, you know, you, the, the community or the, the state pub, uh, punishes the communities in some places collectively. So there's a lot of communists in a particular place, you know, such as Al-Qosh, let's say, uh, but it also happens in, in, in Tilkev. You know, there are attacks on the whole community altogether. So it's, it's really um, it's really interesting. I mean, it, 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 I think it's an important chapter about um, not only the judicial system and how it, it views communists and others, minorities and, and, and uh, women, uh, but also it reveals on, you know, the relations between state and society, issues of citizenship and gender. All of these come up, I believe, in, in the chapter. So although the chapter gives us a lot of specific details about individuals and organization of the party and, and um, you know, the path of specific um, members and, and their interesting life stories. But I think there, there are larger themes that we can learn about, uh, you know, uh, the hierarchy of citizenship. I think, um, and that's important, the hierarchy of citizenship in the um, early Republican period, how they're defined, where minorities fit, where women fit, uh, and, and so on and so forth. And how that space is re, you know, reclaimed by Arab nationalists post-1963. Let me ask about uh, some of the stories that you have included in your book. And uh, there is the case of uh, Josephine Ward, very you know, fascinating figure. And Josephine Ward essentially brings together various issues, oil, the 1963 coup, and obviously the role of women, which I want to ask more later. Can you disentangle a little bit all of this for us? Sure. Yeah. She's, uh, Josephine Ward is uh, very interesting. Um, my, uh, my work on her focuses entirely on um, her court trial, so her testimony, the testimony of others, the court, uh, court rulings, uh, they and it's a it's a large uh, detailed file. So I, I felt very fortunate to have found it, and um, I have not found anything else on her. Uh, but um, she was um, convicted for her activism and membership in the Iraqi Women's League, a very important women's organization. Uh, she was the the branch president of Kirkuk. So so quite uh, important position she had in this uh, party, which had branches all over the country. Um, the Iraqi Women's League was an organization affiliated with the Communist Party. 
So there was a few organizations as such, you know, workers' unions, uh, you know, youth groups and such uh, that were also affiliated with the Communist Party. And um, also, so, so she's not only convicted for her, for her activism and, and, and membership um, in, in the league, but also for causing chaos in her community. So that's, uh, that's uh, a phrase used, and I can sort of untackle that for you a bit more. Um, and, you know, her, her, her case is really interesting. It fits within the context of the chaotic tide uh, of a revolutionary Iraq. So the specific moment um, uh, in, in the history of the country, but particularly in the history of Kirkuk, an oil city uh, that had rapidly urbanized. Uh, you know, Sarah Persley, Arbella Bichnimon write about this. Um, Urit writes, uh, Urit Bashkin about uh, communists and others. And of course, um, uh, also, Frati Nugai Frati writes a lot about women and, and their positionality. So here I'm looking at um, at, at these cases or, or this history from the vantage point of uh, judicial era. How did the state? How did how did these judicial institutions um, treat uh, somebody like Warda, Josephine Warda? And you know, it's 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 really interesting. Um, in, in her case, you know, they um, is distinctive is, is very unique and distinctive in, in relations concerning those of men that I have found from the same sort of file, some um, that same period, men who are tried because they're communists or accused of being a com- communist or belonging to an affiliate organization that was associated closely with the Communist Party. And uh, it's it's unique. From the cases of men, mostly we have cases of men, um, in the gendered tone characterizing the testimonies of witnesses um, and of Warda herself and how she defends herself, right? So uh, it makes it really interesting. And and also the the um, the guilty verdict issued by the court uh, that, you know, so, so gender is, is an important component, I believe, of her case. So um, you know, so so you, the use of gender really just complicates the uh, the the court's um, uh, martial records of 1963, and and allows us to examine women in a way uh, that's that's unique, uh, especially women associated with the left or women associated with the Communist Party, and and how they were treated by the state, and understanding um, also um, some of the attitudes that were. Um, uh, towards women that were held by society at large during that period of interest, right? So, you know, um, in in 1963, you know, we, we sort of uh, talked about this in, in, in the question prior. Uh, the Qasim, uh, Qasimite government is toppled. Uh, you have Arab nationalist leaders um, who, who reclaim the Iraqi socio-political space uh, from the leftists and communists uh, that Qasimite, Qasim had supported, his government had supported. And they the representation of... of the Qasimite period as this chaotic tide, right, uh, signified this, you know, chaos that was driving um, a society, a crisis of paternity in society. So there really is a crisis of paternity. So the gender, again, is important here, which um, 
which resulted not only from uh, how Arab nationalists felt that they were sort of, you know, um, overshadowed by leftists and communists, but also from the chaos, you know, these chaotic forces, let's say, that these groups represented um, in this new socio-political sort of space of, of the country, of Iraq. Um, you know, for, some, so for instance, um, the Iraqi Women's League, we know that they were pushing really important um, issues at that time. They were, um, they, they, and they, in many ways, threatened this uh, new revolutionary post-monarchical period um, with, with their uh, activism, their excessive mobility in spaces that men had no access to in, in many cases, um, their, their campaigning, their social programs. Uh, for instance, they had a really um, active uh, literacy project for present women. And, and they also pushed for the personal status law, amended the personal status law. So, you know, so, so she fits within this context. You know, she's an example of a woman from that period is going to be sort of put in her place, you know, um, and, and, you know, and, and this is what the chaotic tide is all about and, and how she's put in her place and this hierarchy of citizenship is, um, again, corrected, you know, um, and, and, and you had in, in going back to oil, uh, and your question relating to that, how uh, Kirkuk as a, as a, you know, city urbanized very uh, rapidly since the discovery of oil in 1927, you had um, uh, new urban communities coming into the city and, and um, uh, increase, for, for instance, of, of uh, these new immigrant communities um, and, and what, what it meant to existing communities that had felt threatened. And, and the, um, you know, Kurds and Assyrians and others were supporting and, and were supported by the left. And, and they were actively engaged in these spaces. And of course, Jews before them, uh, during this time, of course, we know that the Jews had been exiled from the country, uh, but, but the Shiites also in, in the central and southern parts of the country were, were you know, drawn to the Communist Party. So, so there was, um, you know, the, these minority or newer communities, uh, they they had access to this public space within this sort of um, in, in during this period, and and you see it just corrected, right? I mean, it, it's it's a uh, it, it's the the hierarchy of citizenship that um, post nineteen sixty three is put back into place, and a woman like. Josephine Warda, in her accusations, again, gender comes up, like I mentioned. She is um, uh, seen uh, walking around. She is seen uh, in, in neighborhoods talking to women in these spaces that women, men don't have access to. She's seen um, communicating with men who are not from her uh, household, you know, not her husband, not her brother. And and and, and questions are raised about her reputation. Uh, of course, these were other, other um, colleagues that were part of the... Uh, the Communist Party, let's say, and, and, and such with her. So her activism, her, her excessive mobility, um, her sort of um, abrasive nature, according to one of the witnesses, and, and putting him in his place, and how dare she, you know, and, and all of that comes up. And it's, it's really a, a, an excellent example, again, of, of the treatment of women, leftist women, communist women, during this chaotic tie, during this sort of period uh, of late 50s, early 60s. I want to move forward, um, you know, with the following chapters. Um, and, and I want to focus particularly on chapter four, which is about the press and also popular Syrian culture in the 70s and 80s. 
And, uh, you know, you cover this part of the book with uh, examples, again, of uh, uh, women in particularly and, and, you know, specific magazines. And uh, and I was wondering if you can give us a sense of uh, the Assyrians intellectuals of this period and also some of the publications of, of this period. Yes, um, I'd be happy to. I And I, yeah, I should have said it from the beginning. I, I, I try to give a voice to women and, and uh, Assyrian women. And it's not always easy to do that. You know, I'm sure you know this. It's They're not always um, given a voice in, uh, in archives. And they don't always leave memoirs. And, and sometimes they learn about gender relations or how they are being perceived uh, from the perspective of male authors. Or, you know, so Josephine Wood is an example. And, you know, we learn about her from the court. And, and um, Margaret George is another woman, a militia fighter with the Kurdish uh, uprising and uh, pointing to the role of Assyrians uh, within the, the Kurdish uprising. And then also in this chapter. So um, the the chapter on the, um, I, I think, uh, chapter four. Um, so chapter four and uh, three and four are mirror images of each other. And uh, I really try to be... To, to give sort of a, a wide perspective or um, of, of sources or of perspectives, right? By by layering different or intertwining different uh, sources that I had. So chapter three focuses on on the same period, 70s and 80s, from using Baathist archives. So as you know, um, uh, the perspective of the state looking into the community and, and, and in general. And chapter four that you, you're asking about now, uh, from the perspective of the community, looking at their press. And I think it's important uh, to do that. So you know, have these sort of mirror images to see what what each sort of segment is thinking of the other each, you know. Uh, but also, you know, in terms of um, Assyrian, um, giving a voice to the Assyrians, what I try to do in that chapter is uh, look at their magazines and publications, both in Arabic and Aramaic. And I think it's important to look at both together because um, sometimes I'm asked, you know, are they translations? No, they're not translations. Sometimes they're, oftentimes actually, they're speaking to different audiences, right? Even in the same magazine. So so these, these intellectuals writing into different languages, um, you know, it's it's important and it gives you context into the community, the generational divisions, gender issues, and and so much more. So, so 1970s, what happens is that um, the Ba'ath finally claims power after coup d'état, two coup d'états. They finally succeed in in, in um, forming a hegemony and, and uh, taking hold of, of the government. They know they're weak because they've lost power twice before. So they forge relations with communists and, and um, the Kurdistan Democratic Party, the KDP, uh, because they know that they're, they're strong forces of the opposition. They also um, give favorable um, policies, issue favorable policies to minorities, the Assyrians and the Turkmens. Um, in the case of the Assyrians and in the... Um, and, and for minorities, is basically cultural rights that they issue, right? That they give them. So, for in the case of the Assyrians, it's Law Two Fifty One, um, and um, it's done in a way. Um, so, nineteen seventy two to uh, to basically account, bring them closer to the party. Why? Because they realize um, they are heavily involved in the opposition. So with the communists and, and with the Kurdistan Democratic Party or the Kurdish uprising, let's say, which which the Kurdish uprising eventually hegemonizes and, and the, the KDP becomes sort of um, the main um, uh, 
the main party, uh, tribe party, right? Uh, the Barazanis hold hold um, the, the largest hegemony, and they um, the Assyrians' involvement with the with the Kurds. I didn't talk about it. You know, it's the secular leaders eventually who join, but also a lot of tribal leaders and and. That, that's a whole story. Uh, but I complicate our understanding of the Kurdish uprising and, and say that when the communists continue, I mean, they don't stop in 63, they do continue. There's a part, you know, in the north. Um, and, and also that um, the Assyrians uh, joined the Kurdish uprising. So it's, it's not just the nationalist movement, but it involves other groups. So so going back to your question, um, the the government, um, you know, this is, this is part of um, a new look at look a new way of looking at the Baathist early Baathist period of, of, and saying that the Baathists did negotiate, they did play politics early on, and this is something that others um, have also claimed. Um, so it's, it's supporting the sort of new direction of, of uh, looking at the Baath Party and how they operated, um, and and why it's important to look at you know every every sort of uh, period of, of, of a government uh, or, or a political party in power, not just at the last stage of authoritarianism, because we do learn a lot about how how state society, how state interacts with society and how it's impacted by it, right? So during this early, um, during this time, as I said, they're, they're negotiating and they give rights to minorities because uh, of the position of minorities within the opposition, particularly the Assyrian community. And uh, not only that, uh, you know, I, I also claim that they're worried about uh, identity issues within the community and diasporically and particularly between denominations, the various denominations that we discussed at the beginning of our interview. Uh, and also uh, given, um, uh, you know, it's a Cold War period. Uh, the, the Ba'ath wants to appeal. You know, they're going back and forth between the Soviets and, and, and the West, but they want to appeal in a positive light. So, so uh, and, and they know that the community is very diasporic. You know, there's a large community here in Chicago, right? And um, uh, and and these diaspora community members do complain to human rights organizations, to their governments, when there is an abuse, when there is something going on. So they wanted to appeal in a positive light. So so you have these cultural rights, this Law 251 issued, um, and also um, certain leaders who had been exiled, including the Patriarch of the Eastern Church of the East, since 1933, are welcome back, um, and their citizenship is given back to them. Of course, you know there's over maybe 10,000 people who are displaced into in, in 1933. Those people are ignored, but, but you know at least leaders are, are brought back, right? Um, and and they they come back. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, I'm not going to focus on that aspect. There there's much more to be said about that. But let, let me go back to the um, the literary period. Uh, it's very optimistic. Uh, there is, um, I mean, the community is cautiously, let's say cautiously optimistic about the passage of Law 251. Uh, it gives them cultural rights. It gives them many, I mean, there, there's many sort of points mentioned in here. Uh, not all of them are, are, um, are delivered upon, but, but there is a space opened up for intellectuals to publish in Arabic and in Aramaic um, in, in their language. And, and um, there really is this sort of interesting space for Iraqi intellectuals to engage. Um, and they're learning that, you know, there are ways of um, 
sort of negotiating, let's say I use the word negotiate, sometimes are resisting, but then very quickly they learn they, they cannot, not very much, they will get in trouble, right? Um, so, so they negotiate um, using accepted narratives that the Ba'ath has allowed. So for instance, the Ba'ath regime is sort of construct, investing heavily in cultural heritage and, um, you know, uh, Arabizing Mesopotamian heritage, they're um, highlighting Iraq's Abbasid, uh, you know, period and how important it is for the Islamic world and, and the place of Iraq and Baghdad within it. So the Assyrians sort of, you know, take on this Abbasid narrative and and they integrate themselves within the, you know, the Abba and, and argue for rights using the, you know, look, you know, we were part of, you know, the Bayt al-Hikmah, you know, the and we contributed and and so and so and and this golden uh, period of Islam gave us rights. And and, you know, using sort of this um, 20th century terminology to talk about the medieval past and such, but but still, or the or the Abbasid period, uh, but but you know they're very savvy intellectuals, and Iraqis of other communities are doing exactly the same thing, right? Um, so this you know this um, this space opens up, you know, this pluralistic space, which is um, still I would argue um, hierarchical. Right. You know, you, you as an intellectual, you, you know, you, you stand in different um, you are existing within this hierarchy. But I think it's important and it's engaging. Um, and um, and and th- there there are uh, important sort of developments in terms of standardization of the language. And if you look, if you read these magazines are talking about issues of identity, what's a correct terminology to call ourselves, you know, uh, how do we define our language? How do we standardize our language? how do we modernize it and then and then the arabic and the uh, and I'm, uh, i should mention particularly talking about um or in my book i talk about i've published other articles that look at other magazines but i focus on the uh, on murdana turaya or the literate assyrian which was a publication of the assyrian culture club i give reasons in my book why i do that uh one because i have i found all issues for for the, the 10 years it was in um it was published, uh, allowed to exist, and um, it's a, the Syrian Culture Club itself um, is a very important uh, center. Uh, the magazine and the and the club comes up often in uh, Baathist archives, so the state is concerned, it's monitoring it, and also the community. When I started my research uh, for the PhD, um, this was the first magazine that they started digitizing, collecting, putting it together, which enabled me in turn to, to look at it. But there's a lot of other magazines that are important, uh, and I, I published uh, elsewhere on them. Um, so, you know, they the Arabic and, and, and uh, Aramaic, they're not exactly the same, they're not translations, and, and you have two different generations, really. So it's, it's really actually fascinating. You know, the Arabic tends to be a little bit more progressive because there are younger men and women who are writing because they had not. And the Aramaic, those fluent in Aramaic are elder. You know, they're probably their parents sometimes who who had access to the language and, and were able to train in it to, to write fluently using it. So the those writing in Arabic would speak it fluently, but they, but they might not be um, re, able to read and write within, you know. And, and there's also a generational you know, they're born in the 1950s, they were urbanized, they went to universities um, with other Iraqis. So, so you know, it, it, you you learn a lot about issues of gender, um, but in general, though, the magazine and the club are progressive and, and, and secular. We talked about uh, the Ba'ath Party, and the Ba'ath Party is famous because, uh, obviously, the Ba'athification process 
which essentially try to homogenize uh, uh, Iraqi society from different perspectives, which also means the party uh, became oppressive in its nature. And I was wondering if you can give us a sense of how the whole process unfolded and how the Syrians uh, acted towards this process, their dissent, the resistance, and now eventually the Assyrians uh, survived this period of time? Yeah, that's a good question, um, Roberto. So um, what happens, I guess a turning point for the Assyrians, some have argued it's the beginning of the Iran-Iraq war, which is accurate, of course, but I, I see changes, uh, let's say maybe in the northern uh, region, maybe we could generalize and say that uh, after the uh, the Algiers Agreement between Iran and Iraq, so 1975. Uh, why? Because Iran under um, the Shah's government is supporting the Iraqi opposition, the Kurds, uh, the Assyrians included, and uh, when they come to an agreement uh, with the the Baathists on on a number of issues, but including um, the stopping of, of funding to to the opposition, the opposition crumbles. They are not really an important. Um, you know, the, the the government isn't as concerned about them. So do they really need to negotiate uh, with these communities that are uh, attracted to the opposition or involved within the opposition? And um, they they do not. So you, you do see a reversal after the 1975 um, Algeria Agreement. So uh, the reversal also co- coincided, uh, coincided with the increased pacification of society that, that you uh, rightly mentioned. And um, of a Syrian organization. So, you know, a lot of these organizations that either existed or are newly created or radio programs, um, singers, you, you see that they're persecuted. Um, this process begins in the late 1970s, so after the Algiers Agreement of 1975, and escalates definitely during the Iran-Iraq War. So, you know, what, you happen, what happens at this time, uh, singers could be, imprisoned for uh, singing a song that's perceived to be, um, you know, uh, highlighting aspects of the Assyrian identity that the government is not, um, has not okayed. For instance, uh, the the Mesopotamian past, you know, I I argue in my book that there are four important aspects, three three to four important aspects of the Assyrian identity, you know, the Mesopotamian heritage, the Syriac, Christian um, traditions and, and um, you know, very important. Their, their form of Christianity is very important and unique to these uh, communities, the Aramaic language that they speak, uh, and also, of course, uh, their cultural traditions and such. So some aspects of, of the identity are okayed by the government. They're even highlighted in certain spaces and, and places um, during the cultural uh, movement sort of um, high period. Uh, for instance, the government, you know, in, has um, a conference on uh, Rabban uh, or Maraprem, um, you know, um, hymnographer uh, and, um, you know, and, and other sort of um, Syriac Christian uh, religious figures or saints um, that that were quite popular and important um, within the community, but also academically and Western scholars are invited. So certain aspects of the community are highlighted, are accepted. Uh, others are not. So, so the Mesopotamian heritage would not be, right? Um, so the you know you you see persecutions you see imprisonments you also see actually um, 
a destruction of, of uh, communities uh, in the northern parts um, of, of the country. So in, in various regions, a destruction of Assyrian villages along with their crops and farmlands. Um, that happens in the mid to late 1970s. Of course, again, in the 1980s with the Enfal campaign that targets uh, Kurdish communities and other northern Iraqi communities, including the Assyrians, but it's starting in the 1970s. And then you also see the, uh, the census information in 19, uh, I believe it's 78, um, where you have, you know, these communities that are not allowed to um, they have to choose as an ethnicity either Arab or Kurdish. So you know the the community is feels uh, you know um, disrespected. You know that they they that they cannot choose their own ethnicity. They have to choose between those two these two um, ethnicities. Um, and you know the bathification of society, overtaking of, of these clubs and 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 and, sus, and, and such um, uh, persecution in general. So. That what 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 that leads to is um, the uh, you know particularly with the cultural rights. Now now remember during the cultural rights the community was referred to as a national minority, right? But by the ni- late 1970s and 1980s they become a denominational community. So they go from a national minority to a denomination within a matter of 10 years. Uh, and that re- reflects the, the, the treatment of the state and how the state views them. And, and some have argued, you know, the, the bathification or the bathification also takes on an Arabization uh, sort of uh, policies um, and, and um with the destruction of rural Assyrian communities and then and their their hometowns and such and their cultural heritage. So so what this what this does, you know, the increased bathification with the um, the cultural rights and this sort of um, the impetus that that's um, that that is created, which allows the Assyrian intellectual class to consolidate during that period. Um, what you have is the, the reestablishment of the Assyrian political movement, which I argue has been destroyed since since the Mel, since the 1930s, right? So you have the reestablishment of this movement as uniquely separatist. So so up until now, I mean, you had some political parties, but they don't have you know grass mobilization and movement. And uh, as I discussed, the the community is drawn to these other larger political Iraqi parties uh, that that are welcoming and inclusive of them. So, you know, now you have, you know, with the, with the cultural rights, with the sort of uh, increased bathification of society, this, this unique, um, uh, you know, um, political, Assyrian political class develops that joins uh, and operates within the northern Iraqi opposition. Um, basically, what I argue is that with those cultural rights that were granted to the community in the 1970s, the Assyrian intellectual class gained sort of this this um this temporal space to celebrate its cultural identity and 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 eventually negotiate for increased political rights um and you know this this and you have to think about again i'm going back to the generational this new generation these sort of um men 
mostly born in the 1950s and women, men and women born in the 1950s, uh, raised and educated in, in urban centers. So, so if there was a, if, you know, rural urban migrations would have affected their grandparents and their parents, not themselves directly, mostly. Right. Um, so and, and employed in modern professions are going to universities. They're organizing at this time. And, and you know, it's, it's a unique class that develops. Um, and, and it's, you know, there's there's important transitions that you see among this new generation um, whose whose members are, are much more embedded in the Iraqi society than their parents and grandparents were, were because of their exposure. You know, uh, again, imagine, I mean, Iraq, you have oil money at this time, right? So you have all these public institutions, you have universities that are free. Anybody, if you have the grades, you can go to, to the best Iraqi universities. So it just really give you access. You know, you could be coming from this family that's not very wealthy, that's from a rural village, but here you don't, you don't need to have money. You can go to university and be an engineer and be successful. So it opens up this whole new world for you, right? So, you know, it's a really interesting period, although there's, you know, there's all these sort of conflicts in this society, but a space has opened up for these uh, men and women born in the 1950s. Um, so they're, they're also this class is disappointed by the failures of their earlier generation of Assyrians, not secu- securing rights for, the pop- for, for their communities, um, and, and, you know, the everyday lives of the community. So, so this particular... Um, generation and this new political movement that develops is very successful in integrating or fusing, let's say, Iraqi patriotism with Assyrian nationalism. So for them, they're both Iraqi and they're Assyrian. They're, there's no conflict there. And and laying sort of the needed ne- uh, groundwork for a successful um, political movement that um, that can sort of be part of the opposition, that could be a mass movement. And, you know, going back to the increased bathification of society, what, what the Ba'ath does is they persecute these. Um, so, for instance, the Assyrian Democratic Movement is, is formed in 1979. Um, and I and I interview and, and look at the underground um publications of this uh, of this movement um, in the spaces of the Iraqi opposition in the north and and also interview some of their uh, founders and, and early members and you know they I mean it's interesting how they describe their activism but but what what I what I conclude is that um, given the increased um, bathification of society, which continues throughout the 1980s, and in the 1980s, of course, the war begins with Iran, the Eight Year War. So you can do a lot more, and um, sort of hide it under the the um, you know these men were criminals. Uh, Iran is responsible for this. You can do a lot during wartime. Uh, commit your own crimes against your population and and and, and somehow you know uh, the world turns a blind eye or you sort of uh, disguise it as something else um, so you know you have a scapegoat basically so what what happens is that you know those persecutions continue the infat campaign is, is is really horrible but before that in the early 80s you have um, persecution imprisonment and then execution of these um, members of this political party which in turn, elevates um, this this new political party or, or this new political movement um, and and uh, really you see this diasporic um, 
connection with them. So for instance, a lot of uh, Assyrian songs and singers become banned, like Kurdish songs, like other communities. Uh, and now you have, you know, um, growing diasporic, Iraqi diasporic community, like in places like Chicago, and some of these singers who have sat, found a safe haven in places like Chicago, uh, are singing about this movement. So it's, it's re- really interesting, this diasporic sort of grassroots organization that develops um, and, and um, continues throughout the 19th 80s and into the 1990s and, and and so forth and you know in terms of finishing off you know i'm jumping from the 1980s to the 20th century to sort of you know answer the the last part of your question it, it's really difficult i mean it um the Assyrian community had a very active role within the Iraqi opposition uh they did not of course i mean the book is is uh full of uh various engagements of the community within different political uh, entities. And, and some of them, of course, who lived in urban centers um, were also drawn to the Ba'ath Party, some because they had to, others because they thought it was the best thing. I mean, I also look at uh, one particular, uh, you know, member of the community who, who becomes a high, um, you know, figure within the Ba'ath Party eventually uh, loses that position. But, you know, I, I do look at... I tried to give you a various different sort of, you know, because again, going back to what I said at the beginning, communities are not monolithic, right? There's always diversity. So I I tried to give you sort of a different flavor of how Assyrians, like other Iraqis, had to survive and and, and live and and thrive and negotiate and sometimes resist, sometimes collaborate. And, and, you know, this is what society is all about. This is how um, they they function. Um, So, you know, going from the 1980s to the 1990s and 2000s, it's, it's, we need another 30 minutes to talk about it. But if I was to sum it, you know, it's, um, um, l- let's say the, 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 the nationalist movement that was established that, that I just uh, sort of uh, summarized to you, um, fusing Iraqi nationalism and Iraqi, uh, and, uh, or patriotism with Assyrian nationalism, so fusing Iraqism and, and the Assyrian identity together, um, that sort of that uh, ideology and those slogans of them sort of uh, one wonders how successful they are in today's sectarian Iraq heightened you know you you do have a heightened um, uh, sectarianism uh, that is um, you know uh, very much visible in the country you have violence and extremism, corruption, um, and, and the community and other marginalized uh, groups in the country, minorities and Iraqis in general, are really um, in a difficult position. And for minorities like the Assyrians, unfortunately, they don't have 20, 30, 40 years for for them to sort of uh, wait for the country to stabilize, especially when, um, uh, unfortunately, um, the situation became very drastic post-2003, especially with the uh, ISIS or Daesh invasions and, and overtaking of their um, the campaigns that targeted these communities and, and particularly the Yazidis and, and, uh, and, and others um, and, and led to the displacement, loss of life, destruction of cultural heritage and safety. So the community really lost a lot of... Um, more than 50% of the Assyrian community uh, have 
you know, become displaced or are refugees in Iraq. Um, and the diasporic numbers continue to grow because of that. Um, and, and, you know, other problems, you know, there was oil discovered in their areas and in particular spaces. So you have disputed territories for, um, you know, the, 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 the Christians, the Yazidis and, and other minorities, which uh, and, and just a lot of conflict between the, um, the Kurdistan regional government, uh, the central government, um, leading to political tensions um, and, and coercion by larger Iraqi political groups uh, that want you know, they want that want their areas to be connected to their to their regions. Right. So mostly the minorities, I think, have been left out of the discussion altogether. And they're you know, they're in a dire situation right now with their numbers decreasing drastically and um, the situation being um, quite challenging for them. Is there anything that we didn't discuss in our conversation, but that you want to say uh, as a somehow happy ending to our discussion of the Assyrians? Uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Roberto, for this really uh, engaging discussion that I had with you. And I think um, sort of a positive, uh, you know, uh, we we have to, we have a lot of work to do. I think we I, I want to go back to sources and and, and approaches. Um, really, if we want to study these communities. Um, various marginalized communities in the Middle East. It could be Palestinians, Armenian, you know, um, Arab Jews and, and, uh, and Assyrians and, and, and many others. We need to think about how we include their voices. How can we help them um, as scholars, but others engage in this field uh, and engaging with their communities to preserve their histories, preserving their, their um, sources, because we know that um, the, the current institutions that we have uh, do not always do a good job of including uh, their voices or materials. So I think we, we really have to be careful in, um, you know, being intentional about preserving their history, their archives, so that we, we can attest to this really uh, wonderful diversity and pluralistic spaces that existed and, and hopefully continue to exist in our um in the region that we study in Iraq, uh, Iraq is one of the most diverse countries, I would argue, in the region. Um, there are others, of course, Turkey, Iran, but, you know, I, I, I favor Iraq. Um, I, I study Iraq and I am from there. And I, I'd love for this diversity or at least um, the narratives, you know, to be preserved and, and this the reality that we know, which is dra- drastically changing, you know, uh, because of the um, turmoil and violence that the country has experienced, um, and, and you know, we we can do our part by by um, preserving, but also making sure that um, our histories, our the way we write, includes different voices and uh, is is um, reflective of the the realities on the ground, whether today or historically. This was uh, Dr. Alda Benjamin, author of Assyrians in Modern Iraq, Negotiating Political and Cultural Space, published in 2022 by Cambridge University Press. Alda, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much.